Hey everybody, this week's episode is sponsored by Yellow Veil Pictures, who are releasing Matty Doe's poignant film, The Long Walk. No relation to Stephen King's absolute banger of the same name. This The Long Walk is about an old scavenger who recklessly exploits a ghostly companion's ability to traverse time, hoping to prevent his mother's terminal suffering, but finds that some past wounds don't heal so easily. The Long Walk was a hit at the Toronto and Venice Film Festivals, and can now be purchased on digital platforms and the Blu-ray can be grabbed from VinegarSyndrome.com. You can find out more info about this movie and watch the trailer for it at TheLongWalkFilm.com. Excellent. And, of course, we need to give a shout-out to our corporate overlords over at Fangoria. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. I want to throw in a quick spoiler warning right up front. This interview with Stephen King does dive into the endings of both The Dark Tower and Revival, so proceed with caution if you haven't completed those journeys yet. I'm talking to you, Matt Fraction. Earmuffs on when we start talking Dark Tower if you don't want to know. Fair warning. And now, on with the final episode of the Kingcast. This what? <laughs> sorry sorry i had to do that uh plenty more where this came from folks don't worry about it uh what Oof, i meant to say okay. was and now on with the show hi my name is stephen king the ice is gonna break Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. You know, we've had a lot of amazing guests on the show over the last couple of years, but today we have someone extremely special joining us. I think it's fair to say this guest will be hard to beat going forward. The man needs no introduction, which is usually said by people who then spend five more minutes introducing him. So I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'll just say it's an honor and a privilege to welcome the man, the myth, and the very reason the show exists, Mr. Stephen King, to the KingCast stage. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I I'm sure that it won't be that hard to top. Hopefully I won't freeze, but who knows? Well, you're the name of the podcast. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's literally no higher that we could go. I don't that's, think. That's makes it especially difficult. This is like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I just hope I don't freeze up, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you hope you don't freeze up. <laughs> we are, we are very amazing. intimidating. I will say that we, we are an intimidating uh, group of nerds here. So. Well, you know, we've known you were coming onto the show for, for a while now. And uh, since then, I and my, my esteemed colleague here have spent untold hours watching as many of your past interviews as we could find. With the idea oh being God, that, we, you poor guys. <laughs> that we wanted to limit our questions to those that you haven't already been asked like a million times. This is a long and arduous process, but we now feel very ready to kick this thing off right. So... With that you're in gonna mind, ask me, you're going to ask me where I get my ideas, right? 
<laughs> you just stomped all over my punchline. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Yes. But uh, not that's not a serious question, obviously. I, I guess really uh, our, our first question for you is, have you heard this show before? Yeah, I've heard it a few times. I mean, it's a little bit like uh, I've, I've heard you guys and uh, – which I love. I love some of the guests that you have on uh, mm-hmm. some very smart people and some funny people. And uh, every now and then I will check in with the losers club, which is mm-hmm. uh, another podcast mm-hmm. about the great me. And the thing is, it's a little <laughs> bit like uh, there's a section in Tom Sawyer where uh, Tom and Huck go to their own funeral. And right. uh, it's a little bit like that, you know, it's a little bit like listening to uh, people eulogize you along with occasional pissy things that they wouldn't actually probably say at my funeral. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. So I've, I've listened to it. You guys did one on desperation, didn't you? We did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I heard that one. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're big desperation fans over here. Yeah. Is it weird though for you to listen to? I mean, you just kind of answered this, but like, what do you make of the phenomenon of you're a guy, you're a writer, you're very down to earth. We've both met you before and f- found you to be that way. Isn't it kind of weird to have people just talking about you for hours and hours and hours <laughs> at a time, like every week? Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty strange. You know, the thing is, I don't have a lot of, uh, sort of self-consciousness or, or self-awareness about what's going on with me. Um, I can remember, okay, I was at the house in Bangor and uh, I had uh, our Corgi Marlow out on the front lawn and he was looking for a place to take a ship. And uh, mm-hmm. he finally cozied down, you know, the hindquarters and I hear click, 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 click. <laughs> and I look around and it's 40 Japanese people who were on a tour bus and they all had their cameras and they were all taking pictures of me and my dog taking a crap. And I thought to myself, uh, something is happening here and I don't know what it is. Do I, Mr. Jones? You know, so this, this kind of thing. I don't think about it a lot. And frankly, when I listen to the King cast, what I'm really interested in is what people think about the work. I don't really care what they think about me. And, you know, the best part of it is when the people will go off and talk about themselves and what the work, what kind of impact it has on them. That's, that's always interesting. I'm not so interested in, you know, the analytical part of it or this part of this book or that part of that book, because as far as I'm concerned, they're done, you know, they're like dead skin and the people are alive though. And that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and I can tell you that kind of the origins of the show were like, just, I grew up a big fan of your work and I'm a, also a movie guy. So of course I'm a big fan of a lot of the adaptations and, and mm. all that. And I just kind of, I was in the blogging world for a very, very long time. Um, and that's, I interviewed you once actually for ain't it cool news back in the day when I was with that site. And uh, i kept running into people uh, who are filmmakers who I admired where we could bond over our shared love of the stuff that you've done. And so that was kind of the acorn of the, uh, the idea for the show, because we knew that we wanted to 
bring in a lot of people working on movies and stuff. And, and, uh, and so many of them were influenced by, by your work. Well, yeah. That's so, cool, yeah. But it's, it's also very strange. It's a little bit like those, uh, Japanese tourists taking pictures, you know, <laughs> you, you don't realize it until you hear the click, click, click. So, well, I got to uh, say, if I had a picture of you walking your dog while it was taking a shit, I would, I would put it on my fridge. I would cherish that. Of course. So we typically ask our guests what their, their uh, Stephen King origin story is. And that's kind of that beginning of it, which that would be a weird thing to ask you. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned having listened to the show. I'm going to flip this on you. What, what's your King cast origin story? Jesus, uh-huh. you know, I, I really don't because the thing is, it's only in the last year or year and a half that I even became aware of of what podcasts were or right. what they could do. And uh, I think it's because on my phone and my iPad, I've got this little pink app that says P, that's, that's podcasts. Mm-hmm. And apparently I bought it from Apple. And so I started to use it. And there were a couple of uh, true crime things and, and, and I listened to them, but they were like slowing down to look at the accident kind of yeah. thing. And then I found um, KingCast and I just sort of like would taste in to a couple of things because there were some interesting guests and I know that I listened to Mick, Mick yeah. Garrett, uh, was he, didn't he talk about riding the bullet? Yeah, we, we talked, we, we did a general interview with Mick because uh, you can't, he's done so much stuff yeah. uh, within your, you know, your, the sandbox you you've created, but also just on his own. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, even like Critters 2 and Psycho 4, like those early things that he did were very, uh, uh, yeah, and, they were and much better than they had any right to be, right? And so, and Mick's kind of like the, the glue that holds the Hollywood horror community together. Everybody knows and loves Mick. So we did like this yeah, general. Yeah. And, and uh, there was one on the dead zone. And, and, uh, you, you have this thing at the beginning of the show, don't you, with, with Christopher Walken saying, uh, life <laughs> is going to break. Yeah, and, we do uh, indeed. So I listened to that one because, you know, that's one of my favorites. I, I loved the, the movie. And the thing about the book was that I had published with Doubleday and uh, they were chintzy. You know, it really right. wasn't a, a very good deal for me. So we shopped around and, and New American Library had success with the paperbacks. And so they said, well, we'll buy three books and uh, we'll find a hardcover publisher. So it was like the reverse of the, the usual process in those days, which was hardcover gets published and then a paperback publisher picks it up. The paperback publisher picked these up and then went searching for a hardcover publisher. And the manuscript that they had was the dead zone. And all these publishers turned it down flat and said, it, it isn't what he does. He does uh, boogie monsters and he does vampires, werewolves, spooky shit like that. And this isn't like spooky shit it's just kind of sad and it's kind of <laughs> tragic and so finally viking said we, we'd take a chance there was an editor there uh alan williams who liked the book and so viking agreed to publish the hardcover and uh it was my first number one so fuck all you other guys that didn't want it there you go <laughs> and one of the better adaptations too Cronenberg yeah, it was great. I, mean, it. I can remember seeing it in a in a screening room and just thinking to myself, 
this doesn't seem like David Cronenberg at all. You know, <laughs> right. it was it was kind of laid back and walking was great. So, yeah, it's the Cronenberg a, really comes through in that one where the dude kills himself with the scissors. Right. That feels very Cronenbergian. I never yeah. have quite gotten over the uh, the close up of him in profile with the scissors and he opens his mouth and it kind of goes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the cherry on top is the the way Cronenberg like lingers on him when they find uh, find his body and he's like still twitching. Like <laughs> I don't know that that impacted me on a huge level the first time I saw it and it stuck with me over the years. But we get asked all the time like what we think underrated adaptations of your work are, and like even though everybody loves the Dead Zone, it seems to me like it's not in the same conversation as like a, a Stand by Me or or Shawshank or something, you know? No, it's, it's really not. It should be, but it's not. No, it's great. One of the other ones is really great. And I saw it, hmm. I, I never got an advanced screening. I, I saw it in the, uh, in, in, in a pretty much an empty theater. I just paid my admission and went in with Cujo. I thought, again, you know, this is the sort of conversation that you get into with people about awards season, mm. you know, and who gets nominated and who doesn't get nominated. D. Wallace should have been nominated for an Academy Award. And in my opinion, she should have won it. That's incredible but performance. Yeah. She was just passed over. And I think, you know, as somebody who votes for the Academy Awards now, uh, a little bit of an a little bit more of an insider, I think that a lot of voters, particularly those who are, uh, you know, a little bit Older, we won't say that they're walking around with colostomy bags, but I won't say they're not. <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of them give those movies a pass, and uh, that was just just an incredible, incredible performance. Right. So, yeah, and it was, you know, fairly truthful to the book. It followed the book fairly closely, but I can remember it was made by an outfit I think called Sun International, and they provided the production money and. And I was in New York with my wife and they came to the hotel to see me. And one of them says, well, we have an idea about this and we don't know if you'll like it. And they're all kind of looking at each other like, you know, who's going to pull the chain on this one? And finally, one of them says, we think the little boy should live at the end. And I said, I think probably audiences would lynch you if uh, the, you went through that that particular experience, that exhausting, emotionally draining experience, and the kid didn't live. But one of the things that has always amused me is that you see that St. Bernard lick Danny's face, uh, Tad's face, I'm sorry. And so he probably died miserably of rabies sometime after the yeah, I never thought of it that way. Um, but yeah, uh, we we revisited um, the movie uh, for the show. We had Dee Wallace on and, and had a great conversation with her. And she she's incredible, by the way. She's just... I got to look back on that one. I got to find that one. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's good. Great. It's so good. And she's great. She opens up because we, we talk a little bit about... Um, her shooting the frighteners, which I think is a is a movie that is again not really in the discussion uh, as much, uh, and she's so good in it. And she was like very open. Her her husband like died while they were making it, and and she just got very emotional, you know, just in and open and raw and honest about you mm. know 
how she had to, you know, she kind of fell back into work to get, uh, sure uh, to get over the grief. And, and, uh, uh, she, she was just way more open than I would have anticipated, you know, about something as personal as that. And, uh, and she had nothing but great things to say about Cujo. And, and, uh, to your point, like it held up, like we, when we rewatched it, we're like, there's really inventive filmmaking going on here. Was that, that was uh, Jan de Bont yeah. was the cinematographer, right? So, mm-hmm. Boy, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it, it's strange what happens. I remember when we made Rose Red mm. and uh, David Dukes was in that and he did a fantastic job. And then I get a call from Craig Baxley saying David Dukes died uh, halfway through the, the show. He died on the tennis court. He flew in to do the next bit of work and uh, was playing tennis and passed away of a cataclysmic heart attack. And uh, we, we, we loved the guy and we mourned the guy, but we also had a show to shoot. And we're like, what exactly are we going to do about this? And uh, you talk about rewriting stuff on the fly, man. That was a job. Oh, man. Can only imagine. Since we're kind of on the topic of adaptations right now, um, I, I want to bring up uh, a, a few uh, things that I, I have some questions about this because you've adapted a lot of your own work. You, you know, Lisey's story recently you, you took, uh, you know, you, you wrote every episode of that, right? So I did. Yeah. All very curious about the adaptation process in general, and even more curious when you're adapting your own work, like how do you, how do you approach something like Lisey's story, which I know is, you know, you've said multiple times is uh, a book that you hold very, near and dear to your heart, like, you know, knowing that it's going into a visual medium, what's the process like for you adapting your own stuff? Well, I welcomed the chance to adapt Lisi for a couple of reasons. One was I have always loved that book because that book is about love and uh, it meant a lot to me. Hmm. But at the time that I wrote the book, I was recovering from pneumonia and I was fucked up a lot of the time. I was on various drugs and I did the best that I could with the book and I rewrote the book. I had some clarity by that point, but there were things about that book that I thought could be better. There were things like there are five sisters in the book because my wife has five sisters and I thought that's two sisters too many. So (laughs) I cut down the number of sisters, but there was also a thing about the interior language of a marriage that I thought didn't work as well as I wanted it to. I wanted to streamline things a little bit. So, you know, I looked upon it as a chance to actually do another draft of the book. Hmm. So I wrote the screenplays and uh, Pablo Lorraine came on to direct it. And he's fantastically gifted director. And we had a lot of discussions about whether or not Booyah Moon was real. And uh, I did not win all of my uh, talking points, (laughs) but that one I did. I finally, I just told him flat out, yes, it's a real place. And he really goes there and she really goes there, put it to bed. So (laughs) we did put it to bed and uh, there are things about it that are difficult. There are things about it that I would change, but there are things about it that are brilliant. Like uh, uh, Pablo wanted uh, Lisi to have a pool, an actual pool of her own. And I thought that's a brilliant idea because there's a pool and Booyah Moon. So the thing about that kind of adaption with that kind of a talented writer 
in tandem with you is that uh, you have to create something that's its own thing. It comes from me. It came from him. And what you come out with, well, all right. So it's like a fucking peanut butter cup, okay? You got peanut <laughs> butter, which is great. And you got chocolate, which is great. But you put them together and you got a whole new taste treat. Yeah, <laughs> And it doesn't always work with movies. You know, William Goldman used to say, nobody knows anything about right. show business. And there's a lot of truth to that. And uh, there were uh, there was at least one actor in Lisey's story who simply could not help but improvise. And, you know, I said to Pablo at one point, oh, look, uh, here's a place where so-and-so actually said the words that I wrote. And Pablo just kind of broke up laughing about that. But he's uh, into the improvisational thing a little bit more. Now, right. that's one thing, okay? Pet Cemetery was another case where I had a chance to actually adapt my own work. Right. But there are other things like Storm of the Century or Creep Show, where it felt like it was a totally original thing and it was built for the screen first. Yes. Okay. So, and then there are other things where I would just say to myself, oh my God, no, I'm not going to do that. And that was the case with the 112263 where I said, Hell. you know, do it, go with God. And, but I'm not going to try to adapt <laughs> this thing. Somebody else is going to do it. I'm totally all right with that. I mean, uh, yeah. somebody can do a job and I've said this before. It's like sending a kid off to college. You know, you hope that they'll do well. You hope that they won't uh, turn into a, uh, a drug addict or a juicer or, or a meth head or something. But it's at some point you just have to let them go. So right. it know. seems like you're pretty hands off with that. Like it doesn't seem as though if one of them doesn't work, it doesn't seem like it ruins your day, really. No, it doesn't because the book is the thing. The book is the right. boss. So right. I care about that. That's all hands on. That's my, my deal. Yeah, so, you win either way. Yeah, that's right. You know, the, it's, it's, it's Ernest Hemingway once said that the best situation for a writer was you got a lot of money and they never made the film. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and I understand that. But I also feel like for myself, it's a no-lose proposition because – if it turns out well, the way that Shawshank Redemption did or, or, or Misery or Stand By Me, any of those things, you can say, <clears throat> that's based on my book. But if it turns out to be a piece of shit, we won't say any of them that might have been or, or might not have been because we just don't do that. You know, my idea is say something nice if you can. and If you can't, shut your mouth. But you can say, well, yeah, I didn't have anything to do with it, you know. So either way, it works out. It's good. One of your novels that we are particularly fond of and that we have we have pushed very heavily on our listeners is Revival. This is a, a book that I, I don't think I've heard you talk about very much. Hmm. And honestly, I think it's the scariest ending you've ever written. Um. <laughs> I was up at night for a solid month after reading that thing, just staring at the ceiling and, you know, contemplating, you know, everything uh, <laughs> as, as an ending like that might lead you to do. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, 
Like, I'm not asking you where you got your ideas from, but I'm, I'm curious what you were, what was well, on your mind and what you were grappling with. You want to know with. how I got that idea. And that's okay. <laughs> okay. Eric, well, I wanted, I want to know what was cool. motivating it, honestly. Yeah. Like, are you well, grappling with your own mortality here? No, I don't think so in that particular book. You know, my mortality, the, the older you get, the more you live with that day by day. That's all. You, you, sometimes you look ahead and you say, you look at the New York Times obituaries and you say, oh my God, this guy died at 84. That's really fucking old. And then you say to yourself, now, wait a minute, that's only 10 years older than you are right now. So <laughs> every now and then, you know, you hear footsteps. That's all you just, you just do. But with revival, you know, you're talking about scary stuff. And one of the scariest things that I ever read was The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. Mm. And Machen is referenced in that in that book. And uh, I got goosebumps just thinking about it. And I thought to myself, the scariest thing that I can think of is if somebody was brought back to life with a glimpse of an afterworld that was more terrible than anything that we could possibly, possibly consider. Then I thought to myself, you know, what I could do is bring in some of those uh, great old mad labs kind of archetypes from the 30s and 40s, you know, where Igor say, Master, it's alive, <laughs> it's alive. But to do it in a way that wasn't, you know, uh, comic or anything. And, and uh, so I did the best that I could with that idea. And I was thinking to myself from the beginning, and I don't do this as a rule. I, I did with Pet Cemetery, and I did with Revival. And I thought to myself, I want to write a novel that will horrify people. I really <laughs> want to write a novel that will horrify people. And I want to talk about death in a way, you know, for me, man, I have a lot of times I, I, I will see something that I want to get to, an image that I want to reach. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I'll just see an image that I want to connect to a story because to me, it's so vital. Right now, uh, I have an image of a bus in the desert. I can see it as clearly as I can see my computer right now. A bus in the desert and it's broken down and I can see one of those big bus type tires leaning against the side. I can see the dirt on the aluminum sides of the bus, but I don't know what that story is. I have no idea what that image means or where it sure. comes from. Hmm. And with revival, it was that cottage or whatever it was. And it was the moment when the girl uh, comes back to life mm -hmm. in the story. Um, what's her name? I want to say Wendy, but that's that's from The Shining. <laughs> uh, Mary. Is it Mary? Mary Faye. Mary Faye. Yeah. Okay. Mary Faye. Because the other one, the one that uh, he's crazy about, what happens to her? Shit. People are going to think that I have Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, right. she leaves, I, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, she yeah. leaves. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, they fix her, right? Right. Yeah, and then then she uh, uh, she ends up uh, going crazy uh, on her wife or something, right? And mm-hmm. like the, right. the effects right. of of the uh, magic electricity driver yeah. driver insane. So she's cured, but she spreads <laughs> spreads the uh, the yeah. message in her own way. I guess what I what I remember best uh, in that book, uh, other than the final scene, uh, was the uh, and of course this is the thing. Afterward, isn't there in in Hawaii where he's sort of walking down a corridor and he hears mother? Yeah. Yes, I mean it's I'm not laughing. so funny, Steve. That I'm kept laughing, me up for a month. I'm laughing because you can't <laughs> scream. On, on a that ending is so existentially terrifying and awful because no matter what mother Teresa is over there, you know what I mean? Hitler's over there. Everybody is going to the, to this place. Good, right. bad, doesn't matter. You're going to end up in this. Where they're being the, the eternal slaves of ant-like creatures, right? Yeah. That, yeah why ants, that, by the way? I don't know. I have no, <laughs> no fucking idea. It's what I saw. Okay. <laughs> You you peek through I the don't portal. Know, maybe you had it. a particular reason. They're they're industrious or something. I don't I don't know. They're so it was when when we were reading uh, Billy you know, Summers. Here's, here's the thing about that. Just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was uh, there are scenes of quintessential horror, and the end of the Great God Pan is one of those scenes. Right. And there's also there's a Lovecraft story that frankly isn't all that good until the very end. It's called At the Mountains of Madness. Right. And uh, yeah. and there's a scene at the end where the research assistant just finally loses his mind and he starts to chant the names of uh, subway stations uh, mm. under Boston. And all at once you realize sort of what you see coming to, toward him is this huge black thing under the ground. And that's a very scary moment too. Right. So, Yeah. Well, it, and it reminds me of the the jaunt, the ending, the last page of the jaunt, I think, is the scariest thing you've ever written. Like it it gets under my skin in a way that nothing else like I can read, you know, poor Gage Creed. I can read, you know, like, oh, that really sucks. And, and you know, that's scary. <laughs> really sucks. They're, you know, the, my funeral. Hey, yeah. He passed on. That really sucks. <laughs> yeah. The dead kids in the standpipe and, and it like all that stuff is really creepy. But that last page of the jaunt gets to me in a way that like nothing else that I've ever read actually does. I guess you mentioning Lovecraft. There are a few things that Lovecraft can tap into every once in a while that, that like uh, that they get you in a weird, weird spot, but uh, just wanted to throw some love for the jaunt in here. while while I have you on the line. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for that. (laughs) And my, my last question on revival is uh, how, how afraid are you of death? Interesting question. Uh, Not, I think that, Death is interesting in the sense that uh, none of us know what comes after death. And uh, there are, of course, there are a lot of ideas about it. And I think they're probably all wrong that if there is something afterwards, and it could be that there's nothing that's just uh, you turn off like a TV, or maybe there is something, you know, there are, there's, there's a kind of eternity to the universe uh both out there with all the stars and down on the ground with all the dirt, not to mention the ants, you know, crawling around in their little hills. Right. It uh, makes you almost think there must be more. But I think I'm less afraid of actually dying than 
having a, a bad, painful, long, drawn out death, and also of losing my mind, uh, either because of dope or because of Alzheimer's disease. I think in some ways, Alzheimer's, dementia, senility, those things scare me a lot because my mind is my tool. It's basically what I use to earn a living and to communicate. And so that is important to me. But just the idea of losing everything, that's a hard one. Mm. Right. It's going to be pretty ironic if you die. And then you wake up and there's a bunch of ants standing over you. You're going to be like, oh, <laughs> well, shit. Like, anything's possible, man. Anything's possible. <laughs> like, of all the things that I could have predicted, this is the one that, that's actually true. <laughs> yeah. Or possibly surrounded by right-wing Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> That's Rob Zombie's music, and you know what that means. It's time for a brief, contractually obligated, but still very heartfelt shout-out to this week's sponsors. Let's start here with HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Not number two, Eric. Not number mm -hmm. three for the KingCast. Only the number one meal kit in America. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week. So you get convenience without skimping on quality. Skip the trip to the grocery store, saving you the weight in long lines and ensuring you don't waste money on excess food. That's a problem I got around here. I'm throwing away too many goddamn bananas lately. Warm yourself up from the inside out with limited time recipes inspired by cozy classics from around the world. We like cozy classics, don't we, Eric? like beef tenderloin and cheese fondue or miso sesame shrimp and bacon ramen. Uh, I am particularly hyped to try out the meatballs with bulgogi sauce. They had a bulgogi pizza at the draft house not long ago that was fucking killer. And the Italian chicken over lemony spaghetti. If you want to try it out, you can go to HelloFresh.com slash KingCast16 and use code KingCast16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That is, once again, HelloFresh.com slash KingCast16. You want to use the code KingCast16 and get you're going to get 16 free meals plus three free gifts. Also, want to remind you here at the end, this is America's number one meal kit, folks. They are not screwing around. So <laughs> if you're going to try one of these things, this is the service to try. Today's episode is also brought to you by Nightfire, the publisher of Sundial by Katriana Ward who is the author of The Last House on Needless Street. All Rob wanted was a normal life. She almost got it, too. But when her oldest daughter, Callie, exhibits the same darkness Rob remembers from the childhood she left behind at Sundial, the mother and daughter embark on a dark desert journey into the past in the hopes of redeeming their future. Expect lots of twists and turns in this dark family gothic tale. Sundial is available now everywhere books are sold. And now with all of that said, let's get back to the conversation at hand. <laughs> Now, to wrap up the revival thing, we talked about, you know, uh, you it's funny that you were kind of like, like, OK, what happened to the 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 girl? He was he was really hot on because um, we read uh, Flanagan's uh, script. He very graciously let us read his adaptation of revival that ended up not going uh, at Netflix. And uh, my memory of that is that he merged those two characters. Isn't that what he did, Scott? Because that that yes. kind of made in that draft. Yeah, yeah. in that draft. Did. 
yeah, he's, it, he's a fantastic adapter. I was very lucky to have him for uh, Gerald's game and and Doctor Sleep. Yeah, he's uh, a he's a miracle worker. He's he's been on the show several times, and we're just we love Mike to death. He, yeah, we, he's we, accessible, and he's very very smart and very very talented. There are visuals in Doctor Sleep that just blew me away. Yeah, I read this, his script for Revival, and I wish it had been made. Not everything does get made. Uh, I'm sure that there are people who would think, when you're talking to Steve King, that everything has been made, and a lot of stuff has been. But uh, there's some good things, and Revival was one of them that just hasn't made it. That's too bad. Yeah. I, it, Mike has, has a, a talent of taking things we've called him like the Lord and Miller of Stephen King adaptations because you read something like Gerald's game and you're like, how the hell is this going to be a movie? Like it's, you know, one room, uh, a woman in her own head. And he makes that visually cinematic in, in a way that, that you couldn't really picture while reading. If you were giving advice to somebody who was adapting one of your books and stories, what would you tell them just to throw the book out? Like make sure to pay attention to character. Like what, what are, what's the thing that would be first on your mind? Well, the first thing I'd say is adapt short um, right. rather than try to get something long, particularly for a, for a movie. Now, streaming is a different thing. That's God's gift to scribblers like me uh, because <laughs> right. you can make things in a longer form than you can. But something like uh, who, uh, who directed uh, 1922? Oh, that's a good question. We should know this as we host a Stephen King podcast. I want to say Zach Hilditch, but I don't think that's right. Um, I think it's close. He did a fantastic job with that. We're gonna we're gonna name check him here in a minute. Uh, Jake's still over there in the in the chair, and yeah, it's Zach. It's Zach Hilditch. Oh, you got it it exactly right. It was Zach Hilditch. Yeah. Well, he did a terrific job with that, and. I think the reason that he did was that he got all the resonance in the story. That is a bitter, angry uh, story that doesn't have anything very good to say about human nature. Um, and usually I find some sunshine in there somewhere, but not in that case. And he got it all. And the reason that he got it all was because it's short. And right. so it doesn't have a lot of subplot. It keeps straight to the uh, to the main theme of it. So that was great. Misery is, is fairly short. Uh, Shawshank is short. The Body, which became Stand By Me, is, is also short. Right. Uh, sometimes uh, filmmakers will add, um, what, what could you call it? Uh, stuffing to the story. Um, let's call it meat extender. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And meat a lot extender. of times that doesn't turn out so well. Now I read a script for the boogeyman, which I think went into production Monday. Yeah. And, just recently. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it went into production Monday and that that is a terrific screenplay where the things that have been added to the story are not meat extender. They're, they're pretty good. So that's an interesting thing. I'm very, I'm interested to see what happens. I haven't seen it yet. Mr. Harrigan's phone. Right. Because I think that's Zach Hilditch too, isn't it? Right. And yeah, that's got John Lee Hancock, I think. John yeah. Lee Hancock. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, I think maybe Zach 
did Salem's Lot. These things mm. sort of all get mixed together. Gary Doberman. Gary Doberman's on Salem's Gary Lot. Gary Doberman, right. The It Man. The It Man. You know, guys, people are going to forget who the hell Stephen King was, but they're never going to forget that fucking clown. <laughs> it, it's going to be up there with Frankenstein and Dracula and, and Freddy Krueger. Pennywise. Wow. Pennywise Ernie. It's spot. Stephen King? <clears throat> who the fuck was he? Speak, <laughs> speaking of Pennywise, this is a, a thing that's come up on the show a couple of times. This is like a, a deeply nerdy question, so I'm sorry. You you might pull the William Shatner like, get a life, would you people, after this, but... um. <laughs> The uh, I would never be so cruel. Just to okay, say. so okay. Then Says Mister Ant Man, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so if Dandelo feeds on laughter and Pennywise feeds on fear, and the character from the Outsider, the Outsider itself, feeds on grief, are these all the same species? Come on, get a life. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yes. You walked right into that. (laughs) I did it willingly. No, I don't think they're all exactly the same creature. And the outsider doesn't really feed so much on grief as he does sadness and loss. Right. Although I suppose they're related to each other. But man, the thing is like, everybody's got to eat. So somebody's got to eat something and a monster would to stay alive would have to eat something. Vampires drink blood and, and uh, the living dead eat human flesh. And by the way, you know, I got this thing about the walking dead. Mm. You know, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that those zombies would have fallen apart by now? I mean, <laughs> Christ, they would just be like bones and they wouldn't be dangerous to anybody. Or is that just me? No, it's. it's years, I, I like where your head years. is at because I would watch a version of The Walking Dead where it's skeletons. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> it yeah, just just barely twitching on the ground. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why not? We're we're getting to the point of saying uh, if if Mighty Mouse and Superman had a fight, who would win? <laughs> <laughs> but there yeah. is that. Well, the reason I ask is because there does seem to be that through line of. You know, whatever species this kind of creature is, it feeds on emotions. You know, Uh these are different kinds of emotions. So in our, you know, again, deeply nerdy heads, it seemed like maybe these things were all of a a piece together. But you're saying they're less related than than we were theorizing. They're all related in the sense that, okay, they're all supernatural creatures. Sure. uh, And they are messing with the living. So, like I say, you got to eat something. Fair enough. <laughs> we assume, don't we, that, that they're evil and that they want to hmm. screw people up and make life not worth living and finally um, end it for the people and eat their souls. So, Yeah. But they're evil uh, to us. I don't think they think they're evil. You know? Hmm. It's an important distinction, I think. It, well, it's what you know. I monsters. suppose you could say everybody is a hero to himself. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. I yeah, don't Tucker know. Carlson's doing the right thing for Tucker Carlson's. What we're That's saying. That's right. Tucker Carlson can sleep at night. So there you go. <laughs> you know, we've been dinged a few times for being too political on here because we are a very <laughs> yeah, left-leaning no. show. 
and you are uh, you are a left leaning person, um, and yet still people show up sometimes very angry with us. Uh, yeah, well, you know, there there are you know we, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, Gwendy, or you said you were going to talk about Gwendy, but you fucking lied. And <laughs> we're getting to okay. it. We're getting to it. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure, sure. And I, <laughs> you got a bridge you want to sell me, but you know. <laughs> Gwendy's button box and then the magic feather and then the, the new one, which is at your bookstore now, which is called Gwendy's Final Task. They get a lot of one star reviews on Amazon by people. And generally, they haven't even read the book, but they just know uh, that there's going to be sort of anti right wing stuff in there. And uh, they don't dig that at all. And they don't have to read the book to know that they don't dig the book, that it's a terrible book because hmm. politically speaking, it's not. But, you know, in most of my books, I don't really get up on a soapbox. I have no interest in that whatsoever. But it's like, okay, early in my career, I got knocked by a lot of critics who would say, you know, there's this endless litany of brand names in my stuff because there was a, a point like in the 50s and early 60s where uh, a writer would say, well, he woke up with a hangover and he took two aspirin. No, you don't take two aspirin. You might take two Tylenol. You might take two Excedrin. You might take two Advil. But when you open the medicine cabinet, you don't see, you know, just generic labels. So yeah. in other words, what I'm saying is I wanted to – I. I came out of a, a college experience where we read a lot of poetry and uh, we read uh, William Carlos Williams and, and he, who said, no ideas, but in things. And so I've always tried to be very specific about that. And people have caught on to that. And now you, you see that quite a lot. You see people will say, not that I rented a car, but I got a Hertz car or, or, or I got an Avis car or something like that. Right. So that's kind of caught on and it, it and it should. I don't take credit for it. I just uh I was there at the beginning and that's fine because I'm a part of the brand name generation, I guess. But what I wanted to say was uh that you know what the fuck were we talking about? Politics. <laughs> politics. politics. Yeah. One star politics, reviews. The politics are there. They're part of American life. So that uh, in The Outsider, somebody goes by a, uh, a billboard with Trump on it and somebody's put devil horns on the billboard, mm -hmm. not because I'm anti-Trump, but because in that area, there was a huge Latino population and they didn't like him. Yeah, okay? right. So in other words, the politics are part of the package. It's part of realism. And you got to be real when you're doing this because, man... You're dealing with the supernatural. You're dealing with a lot of things that everybody knows aren't real. I mean, they're as fucking fake as Santa Claus, but you try to make it real. And the way you try to make it real is that you surround the unreality with real stuff. Sure. Sorry, I just got up on my soapbox. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it's fine. all good. It's good. Eric, do you want to you wanna, uh, ask our guest about uh, Gwendy's? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think he'd like <laughs> to that. talk about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, well, I'm. I, I would love to because specifically, 
I think it was the talisman that I read was the first thing that I'd read that you'd co-written with somebody. And, you know, I'm one, I'm just as a, you know, interested in your writing, fascinated by co-authoring a novel. I understand how screenwriters can work together and even people two two screenwriters will write, they're all write in different ways. So that's fascinating on the, on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'm a dyed in the wool dark tower nerd. So anything with heavy dark tower connections, I'm, I'm interested in. So maybe mm. we'll, uh, we could start with there. I know that's kind of a basic bitch question to ask about co-authoring a, a book, but uh, I, I would love to hear what your relationship with uh, uh, Richard Chismar is and, and how you guys uh, have pounded very, this out. Very flattering to hear you talk about the Dark Tower and 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 uh, in positive terms. But the, what? The, no, are you great. kidding me? I mean, I, I'm really happy because those those books mean a lot to me. With Gwendy, what happened was I had written about 25 pages of Gwendy's button box, and I just ran out of juice. I didn't know what to do with it. It didn't know whether it wanted to be a novella, whether it wanted to be a full-length novel, and I just put it away. And some months later, Rich Chismar got in touch with me, and he talked about doing a round robin. He asked me if I had any interest in doing a round robin story with a bunch of writers, and I've never liked that format. I never really cared for it. I said, no, but I got this thing. Do you want to take a shot at finishing it? And he said, yeah, I do. So he did a fantastic job. The guy is a terrific writer hmm. and he's a good plotter, wonderful plotter. So I, I always feel like as a publisher, he missed his calling because he should have been a, a novelist all along. But uh, anyway, so he finished it and we, di- we did it as a, in other words, there was no template for that because I didn't know where it was going to go or how it was going to finish. He finished it for me. And then right. the ending seemed to me to be very, very dark. And so I kind of rewrote it to give Wendy a little more life. And uh, that allowed him to go on and write Wendy's magic feather right. because he couldn't let her go. And I couldn't let her go either because after he did the magic feather story, I didn't think about her for a while. And then, I had this idea, like, we've done Gwendy as a child, and we've done Gwendy as an adult. What about Gwendy as an old person? And then the whole story came to me. The whole thing came to me. Hmm. And I wrote to Rich, and I said, what would you think about Gwendy going into space? She's got to get rid of the button box. That's the only place. That's the ultimate dumping ground. Uh, She can send it off to Alpha Centauri or Rigel or wherever else, and we can have this going on, this going on, and wait, there's more. She's got Alzheimer's, and da 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 da. And, hmm. and Rich was on board with it, and he added his own stuff. But the only way I know how to collaborate is that you have an idea, and it could change because everything is plastic until it's you know written down. Right. You have an idea, and then you just go back and forth. You swap back and forth, and. And then when you're done, it's you, you both have a crack at revising and rewriting and, and smoothing it out so that like with a book like Sleeping Beauties, which is one of my all time favorites, I wrote it with my son, Owen. I don't know what he wrote and what I wrote. Oh, that's got to be the best feeling. Yeah, it really is. 
He's got a book coming out, I think, later this year called The Curator that just blew me away. So I think you're going to like that. It's got element of world building and fantasy and just amazing stuff. And it's funny, too. So it's funny and scary. And it's the full Monty, so to speak. Well, if Owen wants to promote it on on a a podcast that talks about uh, horror (laughs) stuff, he's more than welcome to come on. I'll pass it on. And he could be on the King cast because he's a king. He is. Yeah. We, we, we've, we've asked uh, Joe a couple of times to come on the show and he passed, but you know, he's a hill, you know, what are you going to do? He is a hill. Mm. That's right. (laughs) In terms of the, in terms of the dark tower connection though, in the the final Gwendy's book, like, honestly, are you done with the dark tower or do you think you have more in you? Like, do you have the pull to pick at it a little bit more? Well, I don't know how much more time I have actually to write, but to take it day by day, but everything in a way is about the dark tower. Yeah, sure. That's all I can say. And, and, you know, and it was my idea that from the very beginning, I mean, the very second page of Gwendy's final task written up the side of the rocket is Tet. You're right. (laughs) So those are the good guys, and uh, there's somebody that's on the uh, the this spaceship that goes around the the Earth to to the Many Flags space station. Uh, he's working for the Sombra Corporation, and they're hmm. the bad guys. And it was great to get back and discover that uh, the tower was still at risk, and those other worlds exist. And uh, I've got a book coming in the fall called Fairy Tale, and. That is also about another world, but I tried to keep it as separate from the world of Gilead and uh, all the mm-hmm. associated places, you know, yeah, the Baronies, the Dark yeah. Tower, as possible. And even then, you know, it crept in a little bit. It always creeps in. So you didn't really answer the question. Are you done with the Dark Tower? <laughs> Get a life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's going to have to be my go-to every, every time uh, I, uh, I disagree with I don't know. I, probably yes, and but maybe no. I just don't know, guys. Please. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Please. Although I would, I would like to, frankly, chastise you a little bit for that wait between three and four. It was like six years, man. Yeah, well, you can thank uh, Marsha Filippo and Julie Ugly. They just nagged me. About when you're <laughs> Thank God. Because they got all the mail and they go like, when are you going to finish the Dark Tower? Hurry up, finish the Dark Tower. So, <laughs> but it's like, man, Gwendy could never quite let her go. And thank God her story comes to a, what I think of is a very satisfying conclusion. And right. when you read the three together, it's a very satisfying experience, a novel. I could never let Holly Gibney go from the mm-hmm. Mr. Mercedes books. I mean, right. she was supposed to be a walk-on character and she just kind of stole the book and stole my heart. And so I just finished a novel that's called Holly and it's all her, man. And so when you say, are you done with the Dark Tower? No, not until I'm dead. And maybe not then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like uh, things that you you write tend to like live in your mind, at least from uh, our perspective. Like there's that whole series where the shop was in everything for a minute. It does feel like there are some things that you, you create that just won't let you go versus you letting them go. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because 
I'm not a very thoughtful writer. I find stories that have a beginning at least, and I have a vague idea of where they go. And along the way, like beads on a chain, there's images that you really, really, really want to, uh, want to describe you, right. and you pull to that, those points. And, uh, when you get there, it's not always good, but sometimes it's, it's delicious. <laughs> Well, before we let the the Dark Tower thing go, uh, there is something that uh, Scott and I have talked about a lot because we we looked into you discussing um, like the origins of the Dark Tower and that you wrote like an outline when you were very young. I think it is the legend that you were nineteen when you when you started that. Is that the mm-hmm. hence the the no, importance think, of the number? I actually think that I was older than that. I think that I was in my my twenties. I might have been twenty one because I can remember. Uh, having these bright sort of green paper that we lifted from the library, my uh, then girlfriend, now wife. And uh, I was living in a place called the Springer Cabins. I was by myself. And uh, I wrote that line about how the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. And uh, I had a whole long outline of what I was going to do. And I wanted to do something you know how it is when you're 21, you, you, you want the world, you want to swallow the world. Right. And uh, I wanted to write a book that was like 2000 pages long. And the funny thing <laughs> was, I ended up sort of doing that. It took a long, a lot of years, but uh, I had an idea and uh, I lost the outline and I lost those green pages, but I recreated them and uh, it just happened. That's all. The thing is, is that I love the ending of the Dark Tower. Like this is, I know that it can be divisive uh, for for some people, and to the, and I think in your mind you might have anticipated that because you give the readers a clear moment to go. You can leave happy now if you want, which mm-hmm. I always loved, by the way. But I love everything about the ending, and I guess my question on the outline is: I know that you don't typically write with an ending in mind, but knowing the cyclical nature of the story you were telling did you know what roland was going to find at the top of the tower when you when you uh started sending those uh original stories off to was it the magazine of science fiction and fantasy did you did you know that part and you just didn't know the middle or did did you really just have an idea of what this world no, was I, I didn't know the end i in fact i didn't know the middle hmm. uh, it just sort of came out of, it it was an organic thing. Once he found those doors on the beach and he drew his three companions. uh, And for me, the really exciting part was to see Roland Deschain turn from kind of this automaton, almost like a, uh, I'll be back kind of guy, you know, (laughs) Terminator into a real human being. And I I like that. But at some point, probably along uh, through the, uh, uh, the fifth, the sixth, Wolves of the Kala, I think. Uh, by the way, I always thought uh, the best one was the one about uh, the the pink ball and the love story. The yeah, Wizard and Glass. Thing. Yeah. Wizard and Glass is the best Wizard and Glass. of the entire like series. The best, Easy. But by the time I got to Wolves of the Kala, I understood that uh, Ka was a wheel. And because Ka was a wheel, Roland had to go back 
to the beginning. And you would have to go through these things again and again and again until you got it right. And there is a sense when I rewrote the first one um, that he is going to get it right eventually. So, you know. It, it's a hopeful, hopeful ending. You hopeful. know, but it, it you is. Know, you're right. A lot of the readers didn't like the ending. And by the time I finished it, there were message boards. They were rudimentary, but they were message boards. And there were um, people on there that were talking about physics and wormholes and, and uh, protons and all this shit that I didn't know anything about, you know. <laughs> and I thought, well, he's going to go through these things until he goes through them. And for a lot of readers, I felt like it was a crashing letdown. But I felt the same way about the negative reaction to the end of Game of Thrones at the hmm. end of the seventh season, where a lot of people were saying, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. Well, I didn't think it was terrible. I thought it was very good. And I think that the reason that a lot of people feel the ending of things is terrible is because they don't want them to end. Right. And that's a point where I have to say, I have to end this conversation. <laughs> right. I'm with you. I like the Game of Thrones ending a lot more than than the discourse would have you believe. It's I think so many people had invested so much in Daenerys at that point that they just refused to see the path that she she went down. Um, yeah. And it like it felt like an affront to them. Um, but I personally don't think that is an issue with with Dark Tower. Like I I personally love that, and I love that it is both kind of like oh my god, you know it's. It, it, it is kind of a downer, but it, like you said, we, we, it has hope in it. There is hope that he is going to get it right eventually. And am I crazy or is, is, uh, do you make a mention? I think that, um, letting Jake fall is always the point where he, he goes off of, uh, where he loses the, the journey and, and kind of dooms himself to repeat it. Is that, yeah. is that a, a I think correct? that's correct. Right. Listen, guys, I gotta go. Well, Roger thank that. you so much for, for coming on, man. It really is an honor. And uh, I'm still kind of shocked that you you said yes, but I'm very glad that you did. Yes, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you. I can't believe I'm saying this, but many thanks to Stephen King himself for finally coming on the show. Still reeling about this. We're recording this uh-huh. outro multiple days later. Uh, I'm still up floating above my head. Yeah, We're a little shell-shocked by the experience. Speaking of which... I want to point out that we recorded an ep- uh, like a bonus episode of the show right after we recorded with Stephen King, like immediately afterwards. Yeah. And uh, it's just us sort of reeling from the experience and you get a real taste of what it's like to get your hero on the podcast you launched about your hero <laughs> um, by listening to that. And our plan was we're going to drop this on Friday with our regularly scheduled bonus episode. But I'm going to go ahead and let everyone know now that uh, we're going to drop that tomorrow on the Patreon. You're still going to get your bonus episode on Friday. A little cherry on top of, of the week. Yeah. yeah. We just have a little half hour of me and Scott kind of talking about how the whole King getting King on the show thing happened. Uh, you know, how we prepared for it, what some of the questions that we didn't get to, which were a lot. Apologies to all the people expecting corn talk. We got to get him back. We, that's got to be the first question. Next right. time to the corn thing. We've heard more shenanigans about this over the last <laughs> week than anything else. Yeah. I'm going to now say that we did that on purpose just so mm-hmm. we can go back mm-hmm. to, to Mr. King. Steve, sir, uh, we can go back to him uh, in what a year or two and just go, hey, so 
this is a giant topic that the readers must know about. And so now you're obligated to return. That, we got to do a full hour on it. That's the only way. Final <laughs> episode of the King cast corn versus Stephen King. <laughs> but yeah, we are, uh, we are enormously uh, grateful for Mr. King's time. And I mean, what, what the fuck do you even say? Just everything you could hope for. You give it as well as he could take it. Right. Got to yes. break balls a little bit. Got the title of his new novel. Just a which magical just, experience. Yeah. Just casually dropped in there, by the way, which was pretty, pretty amazing. She's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, yeah. And yeah, you know, my next book's I'll called t- Holly. I'll tell one funny, very quick, funny story mm. is that uh, Eric and I were so shell shocked by this experience. Like, I remember when I walked out of my office after recording it, my wife was home at the time and was like, well, what did he say? And I was like, I don't remember. I don't remember (laughs) anything. I don't know who I am. And I'm not even entirely sure what year this is. (laughs) And Eric Eric had a similar experience. We both went through, it wasn't a trauma, but it was like, it was a legitimate shock to the system to find ourselves on microphones with King. Oh, yeah. And so it wasn't until days later and Vespi and I are at a screening or something together. And he's like, did Stephen King mention the title of his new book on the show? And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, like that's that's how it, in the moment we were that we didn't even stop to think about it at the time. But yes, yeah. Holly Gibney getting her own novel with Holly. That's very exciting. You may ask, how are we going to top this? And my response to that is that'll be the next guest problem. And uh, if the next guest that we have actually records this week which it looks like he will this will be a pretty epic follow-up to an already epic episode indeed it's a guest we've been working on for a while to get on the show it's someone who's been requested a bazillion times and this felt like the perfect time to try again yeah basically and not only did we get a yes on this occasion but uh, we're doing a, a, a title that is very, very, very important to Vespi and I, and y'all will be just overjoyed if, it, assuming this pants out, <laughs> there's still a chance he could flake at the last minute. But, uh, if we get this title and this guest, you're going to be thrilled. Yeah, uh, do you want to tell him great... what that title is? Oh yeah, we can do that. It's, yeah. it's the jaunt. Someone yeah. finally picked the jaunt and it's this guest. When you find out who it is. Uh, I think you're going to be very excited. The answer to how you follow up Stephen King is with this guest with that title. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. Ryan Johnson before anyone <laughs> guesses that. Yes. He's busy fucking around with Knives Out 2 or something right now. And on our Patreon, we've already mentioned you're going to get that little 30-minute chat of uh, Scott and I decompressing uh, as a little extra bonus and explaining how all this shit happened in the first place. Um, but we also have our Friday Patreon episode uh, which is covering a title that uh, I actually really liked when it came out. It kind of gets uh, shit on a lot by Stephen King fans. Uh, and then I revisited it and I like actually liked it even more. The title we're talking about is Insomnia. And you want to tell uh, the people a little bit about our, our guest? Yes. Uh, our guest this Friday on the Patreon recently wrote a book called Blood, Sweat and Chrome, the oral history of Mad Max Fury Road, which is an incredible book. We don't often get to talk about things other than Stephen King here, but both Eric and I are massive foaming at the mouth fans of Mad Max Fury Road, as any Mm -hmm. reasonable person would be, I think. And uh, his name is Kyle Buchanan. He he writes a column called The Projectionist at The New York Times. And he basically wrote the the Mad Max Fury Road book that I have always wished existed. I, I cannot recommend this enough. If you are even mildly interested in Mad Max Fury Road, you have to buy it. But but Kyle came on 
and talk to us about insomnia. And it's a great episode. Right. Uh, we get into all the nitty gritty of all the various issues of insomnia from the dark tower connection to the whole abortion issue. And probably I say a few things that are going to get me yelled at by some of our less permissive uh, <laughs> listeners. Um, <laughs> sorry in advance, but it's a great episode and uh, we would not be running it on the Patreon this Friday if we didn't feel it was substantial enough to live within this week that we mm. had created. So For sure. Yeah, sometimes the Patreon episodes get like hyper specific about like, oh, let's or hyper broad. It's like, oh, this is going to be all the carries or or hyper specific like Brit when she came on. It was like, let's talk about the boners in Stephen King's work. Mm -hmm. This one is one of those that are like you're getting two episodes of the King cast. This is like a full on uh, total same format. It might live in the main feed and it very well might show up in the main feed at some point down the line. I, I think we should thank all of our listeners. If y'all weren't listening to the show and helping the show become the monster that it is, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to land some of these guests. And we probably wouldn't have gotten King. This is a shared win that went on today, as far as I'm concerned. I feel like our listeners are very supportive and they've helped spread the word. And And we thank every single one of you for, for being there on this increasingly unhinged journey that we've been on for the last couple of years. I think that about does it. Yeah. 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 That's a lot of stuff. Now uh, go bask in the glow. And if you like the episode, share it and make sure to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify. Five stars only babies. Five stars only. Give, Please. give us them fivers. We like them fivers. And uh, yeah, you can also go check us out on Twitter at Kingcast 19. You can check out our merch store at Cotet 19. Go do all the things. Yes, please do. And uh, we'll see you again next week. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>